Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm thrilled and honored to have Dr. Stephen Masley, the author of the 30-Day Heart Tune-Up today, and we're going to be talking about all things heart. So welcome, Dr. Masley. It's really uh, wonderful to interview you today. Oh, it's really a pleasure to get to see you again. Thank you. Well, heart disease is big. It's the number one killer in America. And unfortunately, there's so many things that we can do to prevent and avoid it, yet it still plagues our society. So can you just share a little bit about your thoughts about why it still remains the number one killer today? Well, that's a really good point. I mean, we can prevent 90% of heart disease with lifestyle, but for men and for women, it, you're, it's absolutely the number one killer today. And some of the big problems and the disconnect and why that is the case are that what we've recommended to people is really, we've saved all our energy in most Western countries for end-stage heart disease. Like we spend 90% of our resources treating heart attacks in the hospital and doing procedures on people that may or may not be necessary. So instead of trying to prevent it, almost all our efforts go into end-stage therapy that aren't very effective, to be honest. So, but I'm really excited that there's a lot we can do to completely prevent and reverse heart disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such an empowering place to look. And, you know, prevention is not as glamorous sometimes. We don't always see the, you know, benefit because, you know, of yeah. course, in those crucial moments, we're glad that modern medicine has those things. But uh, again, we want to avoid these things. And so, you know, many people who might be listening might have a family history of cardiovascular disease. They might have a concern. They might have like these beginnings of certain clues that maybe their cardiovascular system is stressed. And so how how does somebody take inventory to really know if they're at risk? Well, part of it is how we feel. You know, one of the big problems with heart disease, people are waiting to have a sign. But the first sign of heart disease for a third of people is they're dead. It's too late, you know, Um, or they have a heart attack and stroke. That's another third. Only a third of people actually develop symptoms like angina or something. But to me, in my practice and experience, the first signs of heart disease are being tired about poor circulation, about not being full of vitality, about sexual dysfunction for men and women is often an early sign. So I think it's so important to look at how do we feel full of vitality? Is our circulation in optimal shape? And are we sexually functional at a high level? If not, we're probably at high risk and we don't, and most people don't realize it or think of those or clues as heart disease. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And waiting till you have the traditional signs, it's way too late. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, such a good list to take stock of. And maybe people might not be thinking about their heart health in terms of all of those symptoms. And I sometimes oversimplify things and I'm like, health is, you know, blood flow and circulation and oxygen to our tissues, right? So the more that yes. we can do to optimize that, the healthier we are. And so I'm... Um, but let me, okay. one more answer to your question. I think yeah. one of the problems is we're over-obsessed with cholesterol. Yes. So mm-hmm. we've, you know, nationwide, we said, if you have high cholesterol, okay, you're at big risk. Well, that might be true that high cholesterol is associated, but the number one cause of heart disease isn't cholesterol at all. And the research in my, from my clinic, um, where we actually measured our people growing arterial plaque, that's the real cause for heart disease. Cholesterol was of minor importance. Blood mm-hmm. sugar is super important. That's the number one cause. I mean, mildly elevated blood sugar is the number one cause for heart disease. And that affects 
30 to 40% of the whole population really is at high risk because of blood sugar control issues. Mm -hmm. And now we're realizing the gut microbiome is another very important risk factor for heart disease. That's something I've really emphasized in this new revised version of 30 day heart tune up. I mean, 10 years ago, I would never have guessed, sorry, I, I, was, I didn't see it, that the gut microbiome would be a really important cause for heart disease. And it gives us an opportunity to prevent and reverse it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, such great points and areas to look at. And, you know, I, I agree, this cholesterol um, conversation has gotten overblown and confusing, and we maybe have gotten sidetracked, and as you state in your book and in your work um, around this idea of arterial plaque. So if someone's new to this idea, what's arterial plaque? Well, it's really inflammation in the artery wall. You could think of like plumbing, you know, your house pipe. It's living tissue. When you eat a healthy meal, your arteries actually dilate and you improve circulation, like for athletic performance or for sexual function. What you eat has a big factor. When you eat a fast food junk meal, your arteries actually constrict and you lose 20% of your blood flow for up to six hours. It's pretty amazing wow. um, within that short time that has so much impact on dilating or constricting your arteries. And if they're constricting, they get inflamed and they start growing plaque, this lining along the arteries. And so I've been using ultrasound in my clinic for over 15 years, and we've been measuring people's artery plaque yearly. And we realize, wow, you know, your lifestyle is way more important than your cholesterol. Been predicting, are you growing plaque and is it growing rapidly or is, or over time, is it shrinking? And I, I was kind of amazed to see that we've had hundreds of people shrink their artery plaque by more than 10% over time, mm-hmm. meaning you really can substantially reduce plaque growth and um, prevent heart disease with the right lifestyle choices. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that we have this technology to detect this, but you know, you being in this world, do you feel like that's still underrated or overlooked to really look at the carotid no. arteries to look at the plaque? Oh, you're you're right on. I mean, I'm absolutely right on. We're still diluted by cholesterol and blood pressure and things we can treat with drugs or, uh, you know, doing an angiogram, looking at someone's heart for their arteries, you know, big ticket numbers that hospitals really. I mean, so, yes, I you're totally right. It's a really good point. We've missed the boat by and large. Most people aren't even thinking about measuring the cause of heart disease. They don't even think about measuring it, to be honest. Most doctors don't think about it. Mm-hmm. But carotid IMT, intimal medial thickness, measuring the carotid artery just takes 10 minutes. It's ultrasound. There's no radiation. I think what's more popular with physicians today is doing a heart scan, mm-hmm. measuring the calcium buildup in your arteries, which is another way of measuring plaque. Um, but it exposes you to radiation. And it's not, it doesn't measure subtle changes over time. So you can't really see if your arteries are growing or shrinking plaque. But a heart scan is the most common way most physicians today think of measuring it. I much prefer ultrasound, but that's, it's a really good point you made that it's not readily used or available. Mm-hmm. Well, the more that you educate people, right, they're going to be demanding us in their cardiologists or their primary good care point. physician's office. That's so a very good point. You're doing, yeah, you're doing the work. I know I had a mentor in naturopathic school who would have a visiting technician come every so often to her office and measure the IMT for uh, patients. I'm having that memory and I'm thinking, wow, she was ahead of her time. That was, you know, absolutely. Um, we started doing this and that gives people tangible information, right? Tangible, objective information. It's not a question. It's not a 
you know, maybe a theory, but it's really what's going on in their body. And so yeah. let, let's say someone, you know, you're concerned, someone shows signs of plaque, you obviously want to turn this around. And again, the body heals so the body can reverse this. And so what are some steps when a patient comes in and you see a result that you don't like? What What's next? Well, number one, I think of food. What food are you eating? Um, two is nutrient intake. A lot of our data has shown specific nutrients. If you go from low to optimal levels, you, it'll help shrink your plaque and stop growing plaque. Uh, stress management, we don't emphasize it enough how important it is. I think people know that exercise is important, but it's not the minutes you spend, it's how fit you are that's really the most important. And the fifth, as, as I alluded to earlier, is your gut microbiome mm -hmm. address. So those are, that's really a, a five part plan to totally transform your health, your vitality, your energy, your circulation, and prevent heart disease involving each of those areas. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not just one pharmaceutical and call me in 10 years, right? You know, so there's a lot of room um, that we can do to reverse this. And so you mentioned the gut microbiome a bunch, and um, this is a really exciting part of medicine, right? The more that we learn about the microbiome and how we rely on the microbes in our body uh, for health, and also when they become imbalanced, they can lead us to disease. And so how do you evaluate someone's gut microbiome? Oh, um challenging. I mean, there are, are sequencing testing you can do today. Um, but what I think rather than evaluating it, it's to me, the most important things are the food you eat. Mm -hmm. We need a lot of diversified, colorful plant foods. That's, you know, fiber. The number one, I can almost estimate the diversity and beneficial organisms in someone's diet, diet by seeing how much vegetable, fruit, beans, and nuts do they eat. Mm -hmm. Those fiber sources are the things that grow healthy ones. Sequencing and assessing the gut microbiome is pretty darn complicated and expensive. And it's not even at this point, highly reliable, mm -hmm. but eating the right foods to feed your gut, avoiding sugar, which feeds the bad ones mm -hmm. and adding fiber, vegetable, fruit, beans, and nuts. And probably for many people who haven't eaten well over time, supplementing and, re and taking a probiotic supplement with the right organism, right microbes, that's going to transform your gut to a healthier gut. And we know that the gut doesn't just impact, you know, at first we've realized it impact your gut symptoms, right? You know, like constipation or irritable bowel. And then there was this brain relationship. That's the gut's your second brain, which this is really true. There's a lot of evidence. And I love a lot of um, Dr. David Perlmutter's work on that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we could see the weight loss connection that, wow, your gut organisms influence your weight and you could lose weight. But the latest data is that which organisms you have in your gut determine whether you make TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, that increases your risk of heart disease 62%, far more than cholesterol. Uh. So eating the right food gives you the right gut flora, and that helps transform your weight, your blood pressure, your blood sugar, whether you're growing plaque, your brain function, and your gut function. I mean, all it's all integrated and woven like a matrix together. So I think it's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a really exciting part of medicine. And you mentioned a lot of great choices. And I think we all can get stuck in the foods that we eat. And so I think you made a really great point of like, 
the diversity of foods and um, the type, not only the types of foods, but, you know, just the variety, right? And that we're meant to yes. have more variety in our, in our diet. You mentioned the TMAO. Is that measurable in a standard lab yet? Or is that? There it is. There? Yeah. I mean, your insurance may not cover it, but, you know, a standard testing like in a naturopathic doctor's office might be looking at that. So, you know, it is readily available now, and we're really looking at high versus low, not a specific number cutoff. And that's new. You know, I would say a year or two ago, you would be really hard pressed to even get that number. Mm-hmm. But I, but the good news is if you eat the right food, you know, it I guess if you, the worst diet to make TMAO is someone who eats lots of meat, lots of sugar, and lots of flour. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. That's the standard American diet, you mm-hmm. know? So that's the worst diet to, for your gut and yeah. for producing TMAO. And a Mediterranean, you know, either a vegan or a Mediterranean diet are probably the best diets to lower it and give you really low levels that don't give you increased risk for heart disease. Mm-hmm. Is the sample that is taken, is it a stool sample, a blood sample? It's, a, it's blood. It's blood. a blood, okay. it's a blood test. Oh, great. I'm going to look that up. That's awesome. So you gave us objective information. We have the IMT, we have the TMAO. And then, okay, some people are going to still be like, okay, what about cholesterol? Like my drug, the good cholesterol, the bad cholesterol. Like how do you approach cholesterol with patients? So (laughs) cholesterol has good forms and bad forms. I mean, if you were trying to assess someone's bank account, (laughs) you wouldn't take all their savings and all their debt and add them together and call them one number. That would make no sense, right? No. (laughs) But that's what we do with cholesterol. We take the good forms, the bad forms, we add them together, and we say that's your cholesterol. Most people who have heart attacks have a normal total cholesterol level. So you looking at the total, I want to point out, is almost not totally pointless, but fairly pointless. Mm -hmm. Really, it's the type of cholesterol we have and the size of it. So um, we have lipids. You know, you used the word lipids when we were chatting before we started here. Mm -hmm. Lipids are these little bubbles of fat and they carry your LDL as an example. LDL is what we call the bad stuff you lure with cholesterol drugs, but LDL cholesterol carries nutrients to your cells. It's the delivery truck. You don't want to eliminate all the delivery trucks that carry nutrients from your gut to your body. And when we put someone on high dose statin therapy, that's what we're, we're cutting down a source of plaque, one source, not many sources, but we're eliminating the nutrients their body gets. But big fluffy LDL, that's a different type of LDL doesn't make plaque and is optimal for carrying nutrients to your guts. We want big, fluffy LDL cholesterol, not little, small LDL. And the smallest of LDL is something called LP little a, an abnormal form of a lipid that is very inflammatory, irritates the artery wall and increases your risk for heart attack and stroke. Mm. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. Not all cholesterol is created equal. I love, I love that. And, you know, some of my patients, a handful of them actually that I can think of off the top of my head have been tracking their lipoprotein little a, and obviously that's a concern to them. And what I'm hearing is that's part of the puzzle. But if we look at IMT, TMAO, look at other factors, maybe their blood sugar, even their blood pressure, maybe then that becomes a smaller risk factor. Is that correct? If okay, so in, in my having measured plaque in all my patients for like 15 years, and we've looked at fitness and nutrient intake and the food they eat, 
Um, the top measures I would think of, you just mentioned, you know, would carotid IMT, are they growing plaque? But if you didn't have access to that, you can predict it with blood sugar, blood pressure, fiber intake, fitness level. Those predict, are you growing plaque or not? So that's it. But LP, the good thing about LP little a is my experience is whether if it's very high and you have a terrible lifestyle, you grow a lot of plaque. It's really mm-hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. But even people with high LP little a, if they do most things right, they eat the right food, they avoid sugar, they get their nut- their plant-based nutrients, they eat healthy fats, they meet their nutrients, they, they manage their stress. When they do the right things, their plaque starts shrinking despite that they have high LP little a. Mm-hmm. So, and it's, it's challenging to treat. You know, you can try some nutrients and there's drugs, but they have actually kind of only a minimal impact on LP mm-hmm. little a levels. And I've kind of found them to be more irrelevant in people who have a really healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. That's That's the good news. Yeah, that's really encouraging because I have, you know, patients who've done all the things, right? They take the niacin, the vitamin C and the fish oil and they're like the protein little A doesn't budge as much. So this is going to be, you know, I have more things to look at for them. So Dr. Masley, you mentioned blood sugar a bunch and I am in agreement. I think blood sugar is one of the the biggest indicators, right, of preventing not only cardiovascular disease, but cancer, neurological disease, you know, it's a really great window into our health. And so how do you help people assess their blood sugar? And then uh, you mentioned some foods that you like, are there any other components to helping people with blood sugar? Well, that's probably the, the number one health threat to America and most Western societies today mm-hmm. is modestly elevated blood sugar is harmful. The cutoff of saying 100 is normal, 90 is actually quite a bit better. If, if your risk, if your level's 99 versus 90 and 100 being called the cutoff for normal, so 99 is normal, you're still 25% greater risk for dementia and Alzheimer's. So no, I mean, I'd really like to drop that risk. So a good blood sugar level is like, you know, and as I said, it's also not just the number one cause for memory loss, but for heart disease. So it's so important, but it's really about food and activity and to some degree, stress management. If you're all stressed out, your cortisol goes up, your blood sugar goes up. Mm -hmm. So um, there's nothing better than eating wholesome, real food, like a simple Mediterranean diet, something that's easy to follow, avoiding sugar, being active, managing your stress. I don't think I've ever met someone who's, I couldn't get their blood sugar to normal if they would do those basic things. That's really encouraging. Are you, do you advocate for intermittent fasting or do you feel that's just individual? It's definitely individual because some people feel great doing it and some are really challenged, but I think it's very helpful for blood sugar control. I think of if you did intermittent fasting two to three days per week, you get most of the benefits of the whole ketosis program from occasional intermittent fasting. So I call it partial intermittent fasting. I think that's the term you used as well, but you're stopping eating at nine o'clock at night and you don't eat till noon the next day, 15 hours, pretty easy to do. Mm -hmm. Some people do that every day, time restrictive or partial intermittent, or you can get by two to three days a week, I'd call it partial intermittent fasting. 
I think it's wonderful for many aspects of maybe not producing plaque at night when you're growing, improving your blood sugar, lowering your inflammation levels, getting rid of um, cravings, you know, for people who have cravings. It's a great way of, uh, once you get through that, actually, it, I think it can be so helpful. For, I'm, I'm a big fan of partial intermittent fasting, at least two to three days a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's great. It's doable, right? I think some people obviously are wired to do it more, but two to three days a week is doable for most people. Um, and I agree. I feel like, you know, the more and more information I see about intermittent fasting, I try to um, encourage my patients to do that as well. Do you have people monitor their blood sugar? Do you have them get those home units or do you just um, kind of do that periodically? I mean, if someone's measuring their blood sugar with their primary provider and it's normal, like, you know, below 95 at least, mm-hmm. I, I don't get so obsessed with having to poke your fingers or devices or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I, but also there's, you know, fasting insulin. So if for someone who's elevated, you know, so someone is now, what if your blood sugars are elevated? I think there's a ton of value to someone testing their blood sugars and seeing, experiencing what causes them to go up and down and what foods might do it, lack of activity might do it. So if your blood sugar is good, I don't bother. But when it's elevated, I like to look at someone's fasting insulin level because that's what's really driving it. I like your concept of measuring it so you can see and get a I personalized I way of what's influencing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have like a, if um, people are thinking, okay, fasting insulin, should that be high or low? Um, you know, can you just um, give people insight of what we're looking for for fasting insulin? Well, 90 <laughs> is a good goal. A yeah. minimum 95. Anything above 100 is considered prediabetes. And a lot of people are reassured by the term, oh, it's only prediabetes. It's not well, greater than 124 on my fat, you know, and I haven't eaten for Mm. 10, 12 hours, how low does my Mm. sugar drop? The problem is when people are eating the wrong foods for their body type, their blood sugar Mm. gradually creeps up, their insulin no longer is effective. So when you're eating too many refined carbs, sugar and bread and rice and not enough other fiber sources, vegetable, fruit, beans, and nuts, when you're eating this imbalanced way, your body gets used to sugar being high. Your insulin's no longer effective. Then mm. your insulin creeps up. But as insulin creeps up to try to keep sugar down ineffectively, we have cravings. We're hungry all the time. We want more sugar. We're on this sugar roller coaster ride. And your brain starts to shrink when you're have elevated insulin, you grow much more amyloid plaque in your brain and your brain cells are dying. Your brain's literally shrinking and Mm -hmm. a shrinking brain's not a good thing. So insulin resistance, elevated insulin levels is really with elevated blood sugar levels is a toxic situation, Mm -hmm. which accounts for like 35% of adults. And it's like 50% of people after age 50, 60. So super common. That's probably worse than COVID, you know? (laughs) Yes. Yes. So that's great. So we're looking at blood sugar and then fasting insulin, and that can give us a window on how much action we need to take to reverse these things. So a couple other markers, Dr. Masley. So you mentioned blood pressure, right? So blood pressure is obviously in the, you know, matrix of risk factor. And so do you have, um, 
some more functional medicine and natural approaches to address blood or blood pressure? Yes, thank mm. you. I, I mean, blood pressure isn't just a risk factor for heart disease. It measured the function of your artery. When your arteries constrict, that means everything is going wrong. Mm. That's not just a risk factor for heart disease like cholesterol. This is your arteries are clearly growing plaque if your blood pressure is elevated because you're, you're having dysfunctional artery activity right there. I mean, mm. it's a critical factor. What helps sugar is actually worse for your blood pressure than is salt. It, mm -hmm. Cutting out sugar has a much bigger fact in dropping it. Exercise is awesome. You know, so think about usually a doctor's what we teach medical students and residents is that when someone has hypertension, you'll probably have to put them on one, two, or at least two and probably three drugs and give them all these side effects. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way effective at treating it. But let's look at all the things that are as effective as taking a drug pressure medication. Mm -hmm. Eating more fruits and vegetables is as effective. Getting up to five cups of fruits and vegetables a day for an average person is as effective as a drug. Mm -hmm. Exercise, wow. 30 minutes a day, getting some intensity in your workout, a sweat up, as effective as taking a drug. Meditate for 10 minutes a day. 10 minutes of meditation or using an app I really love like HeartMath is mm -hmm. as effective as using a drug. For people who have low magnesium intake and low potassium intake, nutrient deficiencies, adding them is about as effective as taking a drug. I mean, there's all these multiple steps we can take that are as effective as drug therapy that improve many aspects of our health and don't have any side effects. Mm -hmm. I know, I know there's so much to do. And, I, and then people usually often get hooked on these medications and there's not a plan to get them off. Right. And I'm, you know, Hey, maybe some people need it for a period of time, but it's like, you know, the side yes. effects are so big. So I'm not against the drugs, but sure. my goal is that people don't need them. It's not like these drugs are bad, even though they sure. do have bad side effects. Mm -hmm. It's I would rather put someone on a drug than just let their blood pressure be off the chart because sure. that could be fatal. Right. But my goal is to give them lifestyle choices that are fun to follow and they won't need those medications and they won't get those side effects and they'll feel so much better. Yes, yes, <laughs> I know. That's the goal, right? Um, yeah. Um, Dr. Masley, you mentioned heart health, and I've interviewed uh, Dr. Roland McCready a bunch, and I, I love that work. And I think about, of course, the stress reduction component of heart math, but this uh -huh. idea of heart coherence and how, you know, really yes. our, the heart is the grand conductor in the body. Do you have any thoughts or, you know, anything that you want to share about your work with heart math and insights around that? Well, I've used it like a vital sign in my office. You know, I first started playing around with it several years ago and was measuring it. And it's like, wow, this seems to relate to people's risk for plaque growth and cardiovascular risk. And it, it does. I mean, there's scientific evidence that it does. But now I'm starting to think of it like a blood pressure measurement or someone's body weight. Because heart math, when you use it with the app, you can measure your ability to get calm in a short period of time. And what I've realized is a lot of people do not know how to get calm. They're just yeah. agitated all the time. And that's, yeah. that's aging them. Yeah. So it's a very important skill is to be able to just tune out, get calm, and actually tune in. 
focus on being grateful, relaxed, and calm. And heart math is a biofeedback technique that teaches you, you know, it's looking at your heart rate variability. Your heart rate should go up and down irregularly. And, you know, it changes with your breathing, but it also changes from moment to moment over time. And we should be able, we should be able to put it in this nice cyclic rhythm when we breathe. And it should go up and down and up and down real smoothly. That's how it's supposed to be when we're in a calm state. And you can teach yourself to use it, to do that using heart mass. So it's like a vital sign. You can measure someone's ability to get calm and coherent. Mm -hmm. And if they don't know, you can use it to help teach them how to achieve that skill if they don't currently have it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's such a powerful tool and it's really accessible. And, you know, as I reflect on, hey, like cardiovascular disease is this number one killer, you know, and, you know, how important this heart rate variability and our ability to relax is, you know, so important to our well-being. It just kind of shows us as a society, like, yeah, that we're all way too stressed out, right? And not getting into mm-hmm. this parasympathetic mode of gratitude and coherence and all of that. So I, I think that's, I'm so interested that you um, incorporate that in your practice as well. I think that's really powerful. So Dr. Massey, so you've been doing this for a while and yeah. you know you obviously have your revised book and you walk people through this wonderful you know, program and give people so much, I mean, gave us so much information today. I mean, you give a lot of people, you know, a lot more information in your book, but what are some of the successes or trends or things that you've been so um, inspired by in your practice seeing your program work? I think the greatest gratitude I've had is transforming people's lives. You know, it's mm-hmm. like oftentimes about a month after someone has come to see me and they've tried what I've suggested and I call them to check up and see how they're doing. They're like, wow, I forgot how great I could feel. Thank Mm -hmm. you for giving my life back. I think what's happened to the average American today is they felt worse and worse and worse. So gradually over time, they never noticed. Mm -hmm. And it's not until you give them their vitality back that they realize what they've lost and what a difference they make. Their energy's better. They sleep better. Their sexual function is better. They're thinking more sharply. They, you know, they just got this, wow, you know, joie de vivre suddenly. Mm-hmm. And they're also preventing heart disease. But most important, you've given them their life back. And that's probably the greatest thanks that I've gotten from working with people over time is realizing that doctors can't make people feel better. Mm-hmm. We're only like teachers that can help people take the right steps to transform their life. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful. Yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. And it's just such a gift, right, to be able to work with people in this capacity. And again, um, this information needs to be shouted because, you know, this we still have a lot of work to do to help um, reduce the numbers that we're seeing in cardiovascular disease in our country. So Dr. Masley, as we uh, wrap up, I'm sure people are curious, what are some things that you do in your own life to keep your cardiovascular system healthy? <laughs> Hmm. So at home, I, I bicycle a lot. You know, yeah. I like to go out for a 20 mile ride and I measure my time and I'm always pushing myself on a regular basis. I do calisthenics and lift weights and I really focus on eating well. Mm-hmm. I take my supplements each day. I try to do heart math or meditate, you know, mm-hmm. all of that. That all those components of the right food, the right nutrients, the right activity, and the right mental state. I can't accomplish 
all I want to do if I don't do it right, because I feel sluggish. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. an interesting barometer, but I know when I'm doing what I teach, mm-hmm. I feel better and I can accomplish a lot more. Oh, that's inspiring, right? You know, it's always one thing to think about things or know something, but to, you know, have it work in your own life and your testament, right? You're obviously very vibrant and healthy. So no, I'm, I'm glad um, that you have those um, practices in your own life. So Dr. Masley, is there anything else on your mind or on your heart before we wrap up? Well, I think a lot of people are waiting for some sign to take action. And really with heart disease, that's a terrible thing to wait for, to have a heart attack, stroke, or to die. So mm-hmm. my biggest message is don't wait. Mm-hmm. Start today and start feeling fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think that's really the key is not putting this off the changes we all know we should take and finding tools that will help us achieve um, an optimal state of life. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. No, thank you. Those are wise words. And I think especially today, while we have our health on our mind with the whole pandemic, it's like, you know, we we know that life is precious and time is precious. So I think you know, seize the moment. Well, I've learned so much in this podcast and I know everyone who um, is listening has as well. And so if people want to find out more about your work and your book, where can they find you, Dr. Masley? The easiest is my website. I am I, and I send out a blog regularly. So it's drmasley.com, D-R-M-A-S-L-E-Y.com. And I, I send out recipes with new recipes that I travel the planet looking for <laughs> <laughs> and, and health tips. You know, what can, what steps can we take? What's important things um, we can do? I think my blog and my website are really the best ways for people to get information along with the new book, the 30 day heart tune up, which I think is a really great source of information for transforming your life. Thank you. And we'll have those links in the show notes and congratulations on your new book. And yeah, thank you for educating us all. So I can't thank you enough. And delighted to get to talk with you again. Thank you. 